Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Good evening, everyone. First and foremost, I want to say that I hope all of you and all of your families continue to be safe and well. Before we begin, I want to thank the underwriters of our new production of The Marriage of Figaro, which, of course, due to COVID-19, we have had to postpone for the moment. Those underwriters are Grow at Annenberg, the Carol and Warner Henry Production Fund for Mozart Operas, Nanette and Keith Leonard, Lauren Leichman and Arthur Levine Family Foundation, Ariane and Lionel Savage, Piera Barbilia, Shaheen Emerging Artist Program, who underwrote Ying Fang's appearance. She was to have sung Susanna. So thank you to all of those incredibly generous donors. While I, like most of you, would desperately wanted to have had the production premiere in early June and wish desperately that we were together for this evening's event, I'm thrilled that we've found a way to have the next best thing. Tonight, I'm joined by the acclaimed writer, director, and producer, James Gray. James has brought us some of the most admired and intelligent films of our age, including Little Odessa, The Yards, We Own the Night, Two Lovers, The Immigrant, The Lost City of Z, and of course, most recently, the breathtakingly ambitious Ad Astra. In a sea of superheroes and sequels, his films stand out for their respect for the, both the humanity of their characters and the intelligence of us, the audience. We are very lucky in that James has been a longtime patron of Ellie Opera, and he made his operatic directing debut with this production of The Marriage of Figaro in Paris, which premiered in November of 2019. So without further ado, uh, please welcome James Gray. Welcome, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. I'm, t- I'm delighted to be here. Let's actually talk about your relationship with opera. How far back does that go? Well, uh, actually, the uh, the story is a little bit funny to me now because I can tell you exactly what happened. And it was 1979. The city of New York had this program where they would send, I mean, I guess you could use this term, you have to, uh, underprivileged kids, of whom I suppose I was one, to the, to the Met to watch dress rehearsals. Um, and I went to uh, the dress rehearsal of Otello, and the conductor was a very young man named James Conlon. I think he must have been early 20s in, uh, at the time. And I know this is true because I brought it up to him, and he said, yes, that was me. And I, of course, I saw this opera at age 10 or whatever it was, 11, uh, 1978, 70, 79, so I must have been 10. And I hated it. I thought it was terrible. It <laughs> was good about it. And, you know, I, I just thought it was, who cares about this? And obviously, I got the bug because and it, took, it only took about 10 years. But when I became, I think I was maybe 21, 22 years old, I heard the overture of La Traviata. And I was directing my first movie, which was called Little Odessa. And I was looking for someone to play the mother character in it. And my casting director, he said, oh, you should look at a movie that Franco Zeffirelli did of La Traviata with Teresa Stratus in it. Maybe we can convince her to do a dramatic turn. It might be a cool thing. She turned it down, as it turns out, and it wound up being Vanessa Redgrave. But I will tell you that watching that movie, I remember hearing that overture and then, of course, also the entract, which is amazing as well, both of which Zeffirelli uses in the movie. And I kind of started thinking, wow, I, I, I missed out on this great art form, and I became addicted. I became addicted. I was maybe 20. By this time, I might have been 23. 
And I went immediately, I went through, you know, all the stuff like the, the first thing I did was I, I went and I bought a, a Tower Records. I remember this very clearly in New York. I went to Tower Records on Broadway and 4th Street and I bought uh, Richard Bonning's recording of La Traviata with Pavarotti and Joan Sutherland. And then I bought a Kleiber's recording on Deutsche Grammophon because I wanted to see how that was different. And that was just Verdi. And then I, I, from Verdi, I went to Puccini. And from Puccini, I went to Donizetti and Bellini. And, you know, before you know it, Wagner, of course, and Mozart. So I got the bug of maybe 23 years old. Too long an answer for your question, isn't it? No, it's actually fantastic. So do you feel like that crept into your work at all? Can we see those influences actually in your oeuvre? It's harder for me to, I mean, it's, first of all, it's an excellent question, but it's hard for me to answer that very directly because you don't have a lot of distance from your own work. You know what I mean? I don't sit and analyze, uh, is there an operatic threat? I don't do that, you know? But having said that, it must be there because when I'm making a film, in my mind, every movie I've made, I attach the operas that I'm listening to in my mind to that. So for example, I can tell you, I was listening rather obsessively to La Boheme during a film I made called The Yards, and I was listening, not just opera, also Ravel, but I was listening to a ton of Mozart during The Lost City of Z. So they, obviously it informs the style of the film hugely, and in fact, on The Immigrant, I just flat out used Puccini and Gounod, and uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody else, and Two Lovers, I used Mascagni. So it's all there. Have you ever thought about actually, since you're a screenwriter as well, actually writing a full-scale adaptation of one of these classic canonical texts into film or? It's a great question. And in fact, it's funny you asked that because I just got a call last week about producing a series where a bunch of movie directors would basically each do an opera, the top, they call them the top 25, you know, most famous ones. They wanted me to help kind of get other directors as well. I would do the first one and get other directors. And I said to them, without knowing much more, I just said, I would love to do it. And there, there's a very specific reason. It's not just the music, Chris, it's, 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 which is almost always really glorious and, and transcendent. It's that in some ways, opera is the greatest art form ever invented by human beings because it combines all of the disciplines. I think it's the closest thing to cinema that we have, much more than just theater. It doesn't pretend to be real, but it wants to be, and at its best is, authentic. And real and authentic are not the same thing. Authenticity is a full commitment to it emotionally, and that is as beautiful as an art form can be. So I have the bug, and my wife and I, uh, we, we, we go as much as we can. Also, I mean, it's, it's, it's on a constant, we're playing, I mean, we play it constantly. You know, hey, Alexa, play, you know, Don Giovanni, you know. If you were to go ahead with that project of filming operas, do you have a short wish list of pieces that you'd want to commit to Celluloid? The answer is yes and no. I realized that my tastes have broadened in a major way on the opera front because when I got into it, it was, like I said, through Verdi, really, and Puccini, who, both of whom I, I love still. But I'm hesitant to say I would do one of those guys because, in fact, I've discovered other and really interesting operas, you know, more recent stuff, but also older stuff. And when it came down, because I already had to do this, when it came down to making a list, I mean, I had like 34 operas that I was interested in. So the, the answer is, I don't know. I, I've been, I mean, the thing is, I guess now being 51 years old, I can say I'm in a phase where I think Wagner is the greatest, but I don't know if that would translate. And in some ways, 
the Verdi and Puccini operas are the most compact and cinematic and most translatable. So what I would do wouldn't necessarily be my favorite. I'll give you a perfect example. There is already a huge amount of cross-pollination. And to those of you who are movie fans out there, there's a Sergio Leone movie with Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson and Claudia Cardinale and Jason Robards called Once Upon a Time in the West, which is almost like stolen from the libretto of La Fanchula del West in many ways, heavily influenced by that, which, of course, La Fanchula del West is in itself almost a kind of weird pastiche. But it translates brilliantly into a movie. That movie is fantastic. So sometimes, and I, don't, I would never say as much as I love that opera, I wouldn't say that's the greatest opera ever created. So what I love best in the opera house necessarily doesn't translate the best for the cinema. It's a different medium. The two pieces that immediately come to mind are both Janacek operas because the dramaturgy of both Katri Kabanova and Yanufa you know, the psychology of those and the dramaturgy of it are much more recognizable for contemporary cinema, I would think. Janacek is an interesting example. I guess because the cinema is in some ways a more intimate medium, more internal. I'm trying to intellectualize something that in a way you can't. I'm not sure I can put it into words, but I know exactly what you're saying, by the way. There is something psychologically more apt for the cinema in that work. But I don't know. The answer is I don't know. I, yeah, that's, I, that's exciting. I four months to think about it, so I'll come up with something. So in that case, would you also be writing the screenplay for it? Would you be writing some kind of an adaptation of one of those works? Or Yeah, very it? weird, right? You'd have to do, I guess, the idea. By the way, what they're doing is remarkable because they're giving all of us a chance to do it as long, whether it's 26 minutes or three hours and 40 minutes, total freedom on the length. You want to adapt it straight, great. You want to set it in ancient Rome, great. You want to set it in a diner from yesterday, great. So the answer is I don't know yet. You know, I've seen obviously many, many, many versions of operas done for film. I'm not sure, I guess I would say none of them is as successful, for example, as Visconti's movie, The Leopard, which uses a piece by Verdi, which I guess they discovered either right before the film was made or right around or before the movie. And for some reason, Il Gatto Pardo, the Visconti movie, The Leopard, feels like an opera. It, it feels even more like going to the opera than seeing Zeffirelli's movie of La Traviata, for example. So I don't know the answer to your question yet. This is very meta, but maybe we should commission an opera of Visconti's The Leopard. Bring it, bring it full circle. You can direct it. It's not a bad idea. I always found, you know, it's funny because uh, only when I got to be a bit of an elder cocker, did I start uh, reading enough? And I'm, it's funny because I'm using this terrible lockdown to read a lot of these books that I never read in high school or college and should have. Crime and Punishment? No, that I did read, I have to say. That I, House? No, I, that I read too for, in school. I will tell you some of them. First of all, I, got, I made my way through Dante, so I'm proud of that. But uh, also the uh, Proust. And what's interesting wow. about Proust is it feels like, because I know that Visconti was trying to adapt Proust for the screen and couldn't quite get his hands around how to do it. And the leopard, weirdly, feels to me like a great Proust adaptation, more than the Lampedusa adaptation. But I don't know the exact reason or how to externalize the difference yet between the cinema and opera, but I'm going to have to find a link in that language. I'm incredibly impressed that you found time for Meatballs and Proust. Well, I you might I've be had, the only person in quarantine who's, who's managing both. No, I'm going to tell you the truth. I have had, uh, and this is, you know, 
I guess I, I wonder if it's true for all of your viewers. I've had a difficult time being productive in terms of work. Like I feel like I've been, I haven't been writing very much. Uh, I have a movie ready to go and actors involved, but nobody knows when that can happen for obvious reasons. And so I find myself reading for pleasure fiction in a way that I haven't for 25 years. Well, it's, it's beautiful to try to lean into the moment, right? And to find, find the joy. What else can you do? Yeah, indeed. What we have. You're seven major motion pictures in, but you're three decades into your opera fandom. Why did it take you so long to use all of your creative energies and bring it to the operatic stage? Nobody asked me before. <laughs> That's not true. Therein, therein lies a tale, actually, but that, that isn't actually true. So who else asked me? I mean, the, the, they asked me to do it, and I said no. A fact, a fact that I believe you tried to hide from me, because, because you and I had a conversation about this many years ago, and you... you did? The, the noise that you emitted might have might have sounded like pshaw. There might have been a hand wave as well. That's so funny. I don't remember that at all. Oh, my God. What does that mean for me? <laughs> well, I, I will tell you what happened. I mean, this guy, a wonderful man named Michel Franck from the Theatre de Champs-Élysées, he called me up and I said, of course, no. And then I was in Paris uh, for work for another thing. And he said, let's have dinner, we can have dinner, we can talk, and I can, you don't have to say yes, don't worry. And I sat with him at dinner and I said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not gonna do that. He said, well, what about Nazi uh, de Figaro? I said, that's not even my favorite Mozart, no. He said, what is your favorite? I said, Don Giovanni. He said, no, Figaro is better. <laughs> I said, no, I, I, I don't even, that's not, he goes, I said, no, it's not even my favorite. He goes, good. I said, but I don't know what to do. I don't know the first thing about directing for the stage. He said, good. And basically the more I tried to dissuade him, the more he attempted to persuade me. And finally, maybe too much excellent Bordeaux, I finally said yes. I said, you know, it was four years from now, I'll probably be dead by then, you know, just pushing it off into the future. But it's one of the great experiences of my life. And I've been very straightforward with you about that. And I'm not exaggerating. It's an absolute high point in my life. And I emailed this to you, and I may as well say it aloud to everybody else. I had a tremendously melancholic feeling that I wasn't able to do it this month for LA and I, because I just feel like it would have been spectacular and I can't wait to do it. I can't wait. I think it's gonna be great. Yeah, we agree. Did he cite in that conversation what he saw in your films that made him think that you were ideally suited to a very different art form? Yeah. Well, by the way, having said this, I need to correct one thing about the record. I was, I don't want to say ignorant. I knew about, I'd seen Figaro actually in LA. I'd listened to it a great deal, but underrated it terribly. And when I started to get into Beaumarchais as well, I fell in love with it so much. And I realized, I, so I said to him, why did you pick me for this? I was trying to dissuade you. And he said that the work that I had done was almost always, and I say almost only because of the last movie, not so much, but almost always obsessed with class and the stratification of society. And I'd never thought about that at all in a conscious way, but he's completely right. And I know he's right because when I was taking notes from the Beaumarchais, which I went to read, all of them were about my interest in this very kind of revolutionary fervor for the play and of course for the opera itself. So he said it was a kind of a political thing that he saw that awareness about a class divide, which is so clearly in the Mozart and the De Ponte. So that's why he said he picked it. And also because I talked in some interview in Le Monde or something about how I loved opera. 
So he put those th two things together. I'm surprised he still has his job. <laughs> what did you have to do in your professional life in order to carve out the amount of time necessary to prepare for this? And were you between projects? Did you? No, you know? it actually was sort of a disaster in, in many ways that way, because, you know, you have to set aside time so far in advance. Yeah. And, you know, I joked about it before, but it's true. I mean, you're setting aside for four years from now and it's like five years from now. You're like, wow, well, okay. And then you find all of a sudden that creeps up very quickly. So what I did was every time I made a film, uh, when it got sort of closer to that time frame, I said, just want to let you guys know for this eight week period, I will be unavailable. So we kind of rushed things along and determined the release date of Ad Astra because I would, there was, you know, instead of a later fall, it's true, instead of a later fall release, we went to the Venice Film Festival and opened the film in September so that I could go in October, November to do the opera. So you have to, you have to do that. I mean, what else can you do? Yeah, that might be the first time in history in which Hollywood bowed to the knee of, of opera rather than the other way around, right? You know, when you have the movie stars on your side, it helps things considerably. And plus, it makes them feel good because you say, oh, I've got to go because I have to do an opera. <laughs> and then immediately they think you're more important than you are. So it's good. So talk about the preparations for the project, and you already talked about the Bon Marché, so you were obviously doing research, but talk about the acquisition of your collaborators and, and how you prepared for your interpretation. Well, I, the, the first thing I did do, that's true, is I went and, uh, I, I'm going to brag about this, I went to the bookstore. <laughs> it, it didn't click on my computer keypad or whatever, or smartphone. I went to the last bookstore in downtown L.A., I bought three mediocre biographies of Mozart. It was hard for me to find a good one. Read those. Not we don't we know less about him than we than you'd think. Actually, it's surprising. I learned about his sister, which I found very interesting. But in any event, uh, read the Beaumarchais. So I had at least some historical basis for what to do. And then I just listened to the opera obsessively. When I went to Paris, I was very fortunate. I had a great AD terrific guy whom I became very close with named Gilles Rico. And Gilles is one of those guys who knows everything about everything. And whenever I had a question, I could ask him. I, I got quite frustrated, by the way, because the translation it, from libretto to libretto can change quite a bit. So you're dependent on someone who understands the language better than you. And he could help me there because uh, he understood it better. But what I did was I just tried to keep I didn't want to. I didn't want to hurt the opera. I didn't want to put myself. Well, no, that's a classic. You know, we've done a couple of projects with Billy Friedkin, and he would always say that his first credo was first do no harm." So that that has an echo there. Oh wow, that's so funny. Um, I did actually call Billy. I called Billy and I called Francis Coppola, who had done operas, and asked for their advice about what it was like. And Billy was quite forthcoming. You know, he was very specific about, you know, make sure they're there for the rehearsal and. You know, all that. It was very, it was, he was very helpful on the nuts and bolts of what it is I'd have to do. But I really felt like, how am I going to improve upon the Mozart creation? The answer is, I can't. And what I wanted to do, the first ambition that I had was to have no ambition, which was to say, how can I serve the authenticity of this? And how can it feel lived in and treated with not just reverence and respect, but also with maximum investment. You know, not respect like you look at something over there with a distance, but how do you do the deep dive, the commitment? 
So in a sense, I kind of began to approach directing the singers, who, by the way, were quite good natural actors, even if they didn't have, you know, tons of craft from an acting school, you know, it wasn't like Lee Strasberg or something, to get back to intention. So let me see if I can explain this. I did not want the staging to be an expression of my statement or a statement that I would make. I tried to get the staging to be organic to Mozart and to De Ponte. So let me say this. Okay, so if you say to a singer, okay, you're going to walk from here to here as you sing this, they can mechanically do that. And it's no good. It feels like what they call park and bark. You sing, you, you move, then you move to another place and you sing. And I realized this after the first three days of rehearsal. And I said, okay, what I'm going to have to do is take everybody out to dinner every five seconds. And we are going to have to become a family. And I am going to talk through the intention for every single gesture. Because if you say to Contessa, go from here to here, without understanding the reason that she's doing it, it feels like an empty blocking gesture. If you explain the intention, what is underneath the text, then all of a sudden, all the movement has meaning and it becomes organic. And it was amazing. You could tell the person, move from there to there, they would do it. Or you could say, well, don't you want to go to him because you see that he's rubbing his ankle and pretending, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, they have the intention and they understand what they're doing. And the same physical gesture takes on a massively different meaning and a tremendous amount more commitment. So in some sense, it was almost like Stanislavski 101, you know, that you go back to intention all the time with every single move. And you almost, my attitude is that great staging is invisible, that you don't notice it as staging, that it seems entirely organic. It seems like nobody went and told the singer, because, you know, obviously you know this, Chris, and I'm sure most of you guys out there know it. Basically, you show up, and this is different, by the way, from the cinema. In the cinema, uh, a tradition, by the way, you can please stop me if it gets really boring or long. Oh, this is perfect. This is fantastic. So in the cinema, the movement of performance has changed a lot. The acting has dictated direction. If you have Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, for example, not Torn Curtain, notorious, right? This is notorious. Hitchcock could say, move from here to here. And Cary Grant would do it and because there was a style of acting, right? Filmic representational. And he could sort of talk like this and you would, you know, driving scenes in the background is fake and you buy it because it's part of what we call the studio system or old movies. Then all of a sudden comes Montgomery Clift and Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brando goes and Eva Marie Saint drops a glove and he picks it up and starts playing with it on a swing and on the waterfront. And all of a sudden the cameraman realizes he's got to go down and get Brando as he picks up the glove. So the mise-en-scene, where you put the camera, all of a sudden gets changed because the actor might do something very unpredictable because the style of acting changes and becomes more realistic. All right, why am I talking through all of this? Because in the opera, what you realize is that in order to break down the wall of something that feels removed from us, something that has a much more direct emotional impact, we are after the authentic. And so to be after the authentic, we constantly dive into what's the reason we're doing what we're doing, or what's the reason we think we're doing what we're doing, because most people act out of you know, uh, unconscious urges and so forth. But there's always a reason. There's always an internal life. 
And if you know that internal life, you don't even have to show it. You just have to think it. And the audience will sense that that is there. And this, to me, was the way to communicate the emotion of the Mozart. And the music is already doing a lot of the work, but it's not doing all the work. It just isn't. And particularly in the final act, which is a very challenging act to stage, which has a ton of strange actions and, and also a lot of offstage stuff, you have to find a way to make it organic and authentic to the singer. So I found myself doing almost like actor's studio work with the singers. Does this make any sense at all? No, it actually, it's, it, it's actually a perfect description. And, and actually, you know, one of my big questions for you really is, I don't assume you're doing a lot of rehearsing when you're making a movie. Ah, I'm sorry. Yes, I, this, is the thing, this is the reason I went into the whole spiel about uh, studio acting and so forth. So in the cinema now, post Montgomery Clift and post Brando to today, because we haven't really changed since then. You go on the set and you say to the actor in the morning, you have your cup of coffee and it's always the most frightening moment of the day. You say to the actors, okay, show me. What are we gonna do today? How do we stage this? And the actor helps you because the actor will say, I wanna move toward the light when he does this or whatever. And you, the camera, where you put the camera becomes a subtle compromise between the image you had in your head and where the actor wants to go. So I was in that mindset when I got to Paris. But when I got to Paris, I saw all of a sudden, the actor would go like this, and then look at me. And I'd be like, well, show me what you would do. Doesn't work like that. And I realized I had to tell them where to go every single step of the way, which at first was horrifying, but then became quite liberating because we started talking about intention. Okay, what would you do here? And I realized that my mode of working had to change completely because they were not taking the lead. That somehow felt natural for the moment. It felt like just an extension of the work you'd already been doing on sets for the last 20 years or? Yeah, no, not at all. To be honest with you, it was a reinvention of what it means to direct. I had to reinvent my way of working very quickly. I have no doubt that the singers thought I was insane or idiotic at first. But then what I did notice was this. I quickly, in the first three days, tried to find my sea legs, and then I realized, okay, I have to tell them. So then I got into that mode. But then the amazing thing happened, of course, two or three weeks into the process, they started to come to me with ideas, which I thought was the greatest. And so uh, really it was kind of wound up becoming a thing where we met in the middle. You know, I had to learn their way and they kind of learned the cinema way a little bit. I know you haven't made a film since Figaro premiered, but could you see into the future and see that maybe what you learned in Paris would then is applicable to film work? A hundred percent. I've seen it already. It affected what I just finished writing. Because I'm- How so? Well, you know, when you make a film, there, there's such a tremendous technical apparatus that gets in the way. And it's not helpful in the end. You know, the audience doesn't watch a movie and say, the focus pulling in there was excellent, or, you know, that's one stop underexposed. I mean, they don't do that, right? It, it made me realize technique, technical ability, you need it. But in the end, what matters is the internal work that you do and how you think about what the emotion of it has to be. And opera reminded me that that is the point of art. There are some people who are very religious and also into art. I'm not, I was not brought up to be religious. 
And art, I always found, was my religion. It was my way of coping with the world and to come to grips with, with the world and to see an artist put something forth that emotionally spoke to me. And so you realize that's the first line of attack in any work is, what does it mean emotionally? And so in order to get access to that, the opera really reinforced the work that you have to do with the actor inside. It was a very beautiful reminder because we can get this, especially the film I just made where I had Brad Pitt on, you know, in a black box on wires and so tons of CG, computer generated stuff. And to get back to basics, to get back to where it's a scene is ultimately one person wants something from another. And what does that mean? It's interesting you say that, right? Because one of the uh, most powerful aspects about Astro Wright is that it's actually a very intimate story set against the cosmos. But there is an incredible intimacy in that film. And actually, everything you just said is really interesting to me because, you know, you're a very successful filmmaker in a world in which what you just described is hardly the lingua franca of the business. And so how have you been able to be so successful when in fact there is a low premium placed on things that might be described as recognizable human emotions? Well, thank you for saying that about Ad Astra. It's a very uh, strange thing, right? The idea there was to be as intimate as possible and to make a movie in a sense that was like about a contrast where you could go to the end of the solar system and be entirely by yourself, but really what the movie's about is how important human beings are and how we need that connection. I guess the answer to your question would be, maybe this is a little sententious of me, but Stanley Kubrick once said, he said that the essence, the drive of the movie director has to be to try and make work in a commercial context. And so the only answer is to be both more daring and more sincere, which you know, it seems contradictory, right? Daring and sincere. But I think in the end, what I've been fortunate enough to do is to be able to work in an environment where if I'm as sincere as possible, hopefully it'll pay off someday. I mean, in fact, to be sincere is to be daring, right? We, yeah. we, we live in the midst of the age of irony. And so sincerity is an act of courage in a way. It's true. I never would have thought that. You know, as a, as a teenager growing up in New York, I certainly went to my share of European and Asian films, and I never thought of sincerity as in and, in and of itself a daring thing. But now, the older I get, I realize that in some sense, it's all you have. And when you say to be an artist, if I may use that term, one has to be obsessed with taking risks. And taking risks really means getting so close to the emotion of it, not the sentiment, sentimentality of it, the emotion of it, to get so close to that, that it's almost uncomfortable. I mean, it is uncomfortable for me to watch Raging Bull. It is, it is so painful for me that it's, it's, it's in some ways quite disquieting. By the way, speaking of opera, you know, using Mascagni, Cavaliere Rusticano, and also Silvano and, and Ratcliffe. And so that's been the drive for me and in some ways, let's be honest here, Chris. I mean, it's, why not? I'm Zooming with you, why not? Uh, <laughs> in some ways, I've been very successful. I've been able to do the work I want to do. But the acceptance for my work has been much, much broader in Europe than it is here on a commercial level. The movies have gotten very well reviewed. But on a commercial level, the movies are seen here still from the tradition of the Nickelodeon, you know, very much a kind of a cheap, popular medium. I mean, look. Neil deGrasse Tyson is a great American. 
and fantastic. And I would, you know, wait in line at the planetarium in New York, the Rose, and my kids are transfixed by him. But he also weighs in on movies. And it's funny to me because here's this guy who is one of the foremost people in the world to talk about space, but he also fancies himself a movie critic. And I would never, you know, go on TV to talk about orbital mechanics or something. And the reason I say this is because it shows you that the cinema as an art form is everyone's art form. It's a popular medium and it's embraced by everyone. So some guy from Boeing who designs, you know, the Dreamliner or something would have no problem tweeting his reaction to a movie. But if I went on Twitter, which I'm not on, but if I went on Twitter and started talking, uh, criticizing the wing shape of the Dreamliner, I would be rightfully a jerk. So this tradition in America where the movies are a popular medium and it's not for some, you know, only two, two people in the world to talk about them, but from all sorts of walks of life is both the salvation of the medium, but also a scary thing because you find that it means that things like sincerity, frankly, are a little bit undervalued in the medium. Opera is not an ironic art form. And so actually your interest in sincere human emotions, actually, it ends up, you were destined for this in a way. I guess. I mean, the reason I mention all of this is that that emotional sincerity, I mean, the, the irony thing that you're talking about is most prominently in movies and sometimes done brilliantly well. There's no rules on it, you know? I mean, Dr. Strangelove is an incredible movie. And yes, in its own way, quite sincere, speaking of Mr. Kubrick. But at the same time, I mean, it's very satirical. It's not it, it doesn't lack for, I mean, the Coen brothers, for example, are very, their films have tons of irony in them. So there's no rules, but my own taste, which is for, of course, uh, as we've talked about Fellini and Visconti, the Italian guys and, you know, Orson Welles and Francis Coppola and uh, Marty Scorsese and th those films. And of course, Mr. Kubrick, that work tends to be very emotional, very personal and very sincere. I don't know what that means for audiences. I think they might want something else. They want like Aquaman now or something. I don't know. Well, hopefully there's room for both. We need to pivot to uh, audience questions, but I know that one of them is going to be, are you now bitten by the bug? Is this going to be part of the future artistry of James Gray as operatic I, direction? If anybody asks me again, I would do it. It's one of the high points in my life. I'm telling you, I don't overstate that at all. I, it came at a most opportune moment, it turns out, because I had been at work on this space movie for years, which was so effects laden and so heavy. And to be able to work in a space embracing this artistically for me, it was a whole new chapter in my life. And I just loved it. I would do it again in a second. That's beautiful to hear. I love the opera. I love the LA opera. And I kind of am very fond of you, Chris. Don't tell anyone. And just, just the people on this call and it's being recorded. Thank you, James, and thank you all for your incredible support. We look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully very, very soon. Thank you, and uh, good night. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera.